0: On Saturday, 25th of May, Andrew Bunt taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of those sessions where Andrew looked at the Book of Romans. Andrew's the assistant pastor at King's Church Hastings and a regular writer and teacher on various theology topics. Let's take a listen to the session. Okay, let's turn to um the Book of Romans. I love the Book of Romans. I um, have avoided specialising in Romans in kind of academic work and stuff I've done, because all evangelical reform guys do Romans. But every time I come back to it, I feel like I can come back to a good old friend, <laughs> uh, which is really lovely. So when uh, Andy invited me here, this is, to be frank, why I chose to do this session. Uh, Romans is arguably one of the most significant books in the Bible. <laughs> Both for the, its contents, in the way it outlines for us the gospel, in the way it's so helpful in helping us to kind of understand biblical theology and thread so many things together. It's, it really is kind of a, yeah, if you understand the theology of Romans, it will so help you to understand the theology of the Bible and how it fits together as a whole. It's also hugely significant because of the influence it's had. If you know any of your church history, you can think of key figures like Augustine in the early church, like Luther, when we get to the Protestant Reformation, Wesley a bit later, even Karl Barth in more recent, um, the last century or so, who basically was a guy who said that kind of the study of theology had become too separated from the realities of life and what the text actually says, and too kind of abstract and all sorts, and he said, that, let's go back to Romans, wrote an incredibly important commentary on Romans, which a lot of which I wouldn't agree with at least, but he, it was impact, the the text was impactful to him, Of so actually, we need to go back, there's some real reality, some earthing stuff we need to take hold of here. It's also a a complex book, 16 chapters, which are largely one argument, one train of thought, as we'll see, and which can be quite hard to follow. So what we're going to do is do a quick bit of introduction, and then we'll give the last hour, maybe more, depending on how how long the instruction takes to best walking through the text together we're going to try and kind of give a map give an overview, look at the thread together and so my encouragement to you be when you get home find some time to read through Romans slowly and kind of see how we said kind of um, feeds together in it so this is a letter written by Paul as he himself says no one really has questioned that uh, particularly in church history it's largely agreed he did write this and he probably wrote through a scribe as he and others often did There's the name Tertius is mentioned in chapter 16, who probably is the guy who Paul um, uh, kind of spoke the words to and he wrote them down for him. And most people agree this letter was written in Corinth. And there are various reasons we think that. We know that Paul stayed in Corinth ahead of his trip to Jerusalem. And he'll tell us in this letter that his next step is to go to Jerusalem. And if he was in, um, or sorry, he said in Greece, if he's in Greece, he's likely to have been in Corinth. There's a lady called Phoebe mentioned in chapter 16, who probably is the lady who carried the letter from where the Paul was to Rome. And she was from Cancrii, which is just next to Corinth. So again, likely to put that area. There's mention of a guy called Gaius, who may be the Gaius who's baptised by Paul in Corinth. There's that brilliant bit in 1 Corinthians 1 where Paul says, I'm so glad that I didn't baptise any of you. Oh, but I did baptise Gaius and one other guy, but we'll leave that to one side. So probably there's a link there, probably this is Corinth he's talking about. And really interestingly, there's mention of an Erastus in chapter 16. And in the last century, there's been an inscription found in Corinth which mentions an Erastus who was the governor of the city. And there's a load of controversy because the title given to him in the inscription and given to Romans 16 are slightly different. But maybe he got a promotion, you know, so it could well be the same guy there. So Corinth seems a likely place of writing. If that's the case, we're probably talking about something around 57 AD. So Jesus um, dies, resurrected, goes, uh, sends to be the Father in about 33 AD. Paul dies maybe in 62, maybe a bit later in the 60s. So he's reaching the end of his life, certainly. And the recipients are Christians in Rome, and we don't know a lot about them. It's likely that there were, there were uh, Jews in Jerusalem at Pentecost and who heard the preaching of Peter, in fact, we know they were from Acts 2, who heard the preaching of Peter, who responded to Jesus, who then went back to Rome and started the church there. That's our best bet of how the church in Rome actually begun. We know it wasn't a church planted by Paul. He himself will say that in this letter. And it seems from the evidence of the letter that this church existed as multiple house churches meeting around the city, but who clearly have some level of relationship with each other because the whole letter is kind of written to um, all of them all together. And we're going to see the congregation seems to be a mix of Jewish Christians and of Gentile Christians. And one of the reasons Romans is written, I'm giving the answer to the activity, I won't say that. There were both Jews and Gentiles there, which might become significant. I going to give away the answer too quickly, because I'm now going to let you look at the text yourself in this activity we've got there. It's really helpful to know the situation of a writer and of the recipients. And we're talking about um, well the New Testament letters. Because that can help us think about what might have been the purpose in writing. If that was what was going on for each of those, what kind of things might they have been trying to say, trying to work through? And that can give us a, a kind of starting point, guiding point, really. So in your notes, I think hopefully you've got um, a few passages to look up. And you've got a section to put down what was going on in Paul's life and why therefore might he be writing to the Romans. What was going on in the Roman churches and why might Paul therefore be writing to them. So we have a quick look at that a bit tight, so maybe if you're in the front two rows, if you start at the beginning of the list of texts, if you're on the back two rows, if you start at the end of the list of texts, as in chapter 15, and work your way back, we'll cover more of them together. Just do kind of five or 10 minutes uh, looking at that one. That Hopefully, you found a few things there, begun to get a bit of a hunch of what kind of things might Paul want to say in this letter, and I'm just going to zip you through kind of what I've got in these boxes. You'll notice Paul's situation, you find in chapter 1 in your top number 15, he's currently probably in Greece. His plan is to go to Jerusalem. He's got a collection to take for um, them in Jerusalem because they're suffering from a famine and various things. He then wants to go to Rome, where he hasn't yet ever been. They don't know him. He hasn't gone to the church. And he wants them to help him to get to Spain. And that help probably means both, you know, kind of encourage him, be nice to him, give him some lodgings in the way. It probably also means giving him some money, um, based on the words that are used there. So this is a guy writing to church, he wants to help him, even financially, who don't really even know him. One of the reasons he's writing is just to basically to introduce himself and one of the reasons why Romans gives such a kind of um, long explanation of the gospel Paul preaches is he kind of wants to say look, I'm kosher, you can trust me because here's what I teach, you haven't met me but here's what I will teach you and what I will teach the guys in Spain. And Even the fact, you know, that in chapter 1 he's read that, bit, he talks about the fact he wants them to be mutually encouraged, he's it's a little bit sucking up to him, I think, um, of saying, you know, we're going to mutually encourage him, as you would if you're talking to people you don't know at all. Um, it's also the case, what I've got from the text, is the case that by this point, Paul is being through all the controversies we see in Galatians. And so it's possible that there were kind of rumours flying around that Paul was quite kind of anti-law, anti-Torah, the Jewish law. And that might be one of the reasons why he talks about the law quite a bit in this letter. He's kind of defending his uh, position in that way. And on the Romans uh, situation, what hopefully you notice in several of those verses is that Paul specifically says that things are for both the Jews and the Gentiles. You see in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and when you get to 14 and 15, you get this division between the weak and the strong. Some people think you can eat meat, some people think you just eat vegetables, some people think you need to keep special festival days, some people think you can't. Which probably, again, is primarily a Jew-Gentile divide. So there's clearly tension in the church. And a lot of what Paul is saying, therefore, is that the gospel unites people. And there may be a good historical reason for that. So, I can't remember the date, I haven't got it written down, but shortly before this, the Jews had been expelled from um, Rome over controversy over Christus, which probably is a misspelling of Christ. So, the emperor and people had heard all this commotion going on in Rome about Christus, and so basically, they thought it was because of the Jews, and they expelled the Jews from the city. A few years later, there's a new emperor, and he lets them back. But what that means, of course, is that for a few years, this church had been entirely made up of the Gentile Christians, who, of course, weren't the guys who started it, would have been started by Jewish Christians, then the Jews come back and they come back to the church and there's these kind of inevitable tensions of these people have been running this church, leading this church, doing the church, and now the people who planted the church have come back and kind of, what position do they have? How do they work through that rather difficult dynamic? So there's probably a very good historical reason why there were tensions between Jews and Gentiles in this church. And part of what Paul is doing is showing them how the gospel actually brings unity. actually how they live and how they think of each other they should be united because of what god has done in christ and we'll see that is a significant theme um, as we go through the book and that exercise is worth doing because people often think of romans as being a bit of a kind of mini systematic theology and not being very situational as in not being very much for a particular time and place and that's just not true actually so even though paul hasn't been there he does know about this church And as with all of his letters, really, he's writing into a specific situation and having it in our minds as we go through will be helpful to understand it well. Another helpful thing before you get to the letter is to think about what's the overall theme to get some kind of big picture understanding which guides our interpretation or understanding of different parts of it. And there are lots of different views on that, different suggestions have been made. And particularly, you can break Romans into four different sections, and basically each different section has been deemed to be the most important and has been said to be the main theme at different times. So chapters 1 to 4, where the main theme is justification by faith, has often been said to be the main thing, especially among Protestants, for the Reformers, for Luther and Calvin, well, Luther particularly, uh, that was was the the place, the centre of the letter, the key theme. Then um, chapters five to eight, which are about union with Christ, so being in Christ and the blessings that come from that concept, sometimes called participation, have uh, more recently been seen as very important. So kind of early 20th century, people like Schweitzer and Reed, these wonderful German scholars, put a really big focus on us being in Christ. And they thought that is what this letter is really about, that you're placed in Christ as a Christian. Then even more recently, chapters 9 to 11, which are about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles and their relation in salvation history, has been more of a thing. So that's kind of later 20th century Stendhal. Tom Wright, I think, would partly fit in there and probably partly in the next one as well, which is the last section, which is about the unity of Gentile and Jewish believers, specifically in how you actually live out church life, how you live out Christian life together. And that's the one which most recently has been um, kind of thought of as... The main theme, so the um, scholar Watson up in Durham thinks that. And so each one of these at different times has been thought, we've gradually worked our way through. It's interesting, we've worked our way through in order, historically, which one's the most important. I don't know where we're going to go now, in the sense of what people are going to choose after this. But I think the best option for an overall theme, actually, is not to take one of the four and make it the whole thing, but actually it's to recognise that the Gospel seems to be a uniting theme, a uniting thread throughout the whole of this letter. It's the key theme right at the start of the letter. In the very first few verses, Paul's explaining what the gospel is. And when in, chapter, when in verse 15 and 16, he's given the kind of the thesis statement of the letter, the thing from which the whole argument flows, it's about the gospel and the gospel being God's power for salvation. And there's a good case to be made. It's presented as the thing. Um, And it also appears at the end. It's interesting, the last chapter, the word reappears several times, or chapter 15 reappears several times. It kind of bookends, which suggests it's probably very important. And I think the Gospel as a theme can account for all the different sections of Romans. The first four chapters are how the Gospel brings salvation, or more precisely, brings justification. Five to eight are how the Gospel empowers Christian living and guarantees end-time salvation, i.e. in Judgment Day. 9 to 11 are how actually the gospel shapes and transforms the relationship between Jew and Gentile in the people of God. And 12 to 16 are how the gospel shapes Christian living, especially the relationship with Jew and Gentile and how we actually live in very practical terms. So that's the kind of theme we're going to use as we read through Romans together. The gospel, I think, is a helpful structure there. But there are two other um, sub-themes as well, which are worth noting. Again, often this is a bookending kind of thing. In both chapters 1... And chapter 16, Paul talks about the obedience of faith. I mean, the obedience which flows from faith. And that seems to be quite a theme here. He doesn't just talk about the fact that we have faith in Jesus and we're forgiven. He also is very big in Romans on, then how do we live and how are we empowered to live that way? And for Paul, just being forgiven isn't the end goal. In his obedience to Jesus is the end goal. And we see that both start and end of the letter and arguably at very least 6 to 8 and 12 to 13 are hugely on that theme as well. And then, unsurprisingly, given that historical situation we said about the Jews and Gentiles, there's an ongoing repeated motif that comes in and out of how Jews and Gentiles are equal before God and are united before God. It's prominent at the beginning, um, chapters 1 and 2, prominent at the ending. It's also prominent in chapters 13 and 14. When we get there, he gives a whole couple of chapters to this kind of division that's going on. And so that seems to be a key theme because Paul knows it's an issue. He knows he needs to address it in the letter. And then let's says talk briefly about two things on how to read Romans well. In a sense, reading Romans well is like reading any part of the Bible well, which means there are two things you want to do, two distinct steps you want to take. The first step is to say, what was Paul trying to communicate to the original readers or hearers? That's the key question always in reading the Bible. So you know, the question, what does this mean to me, what does this say to me, can be okay but it's dangerous because we might disagree on what it means. And those two things might not both bear to be true and there will be an issue. Or someone might say, well, to me, this means this. And actually, that turns out to be quite a harmful or quite a dangerous thing. If that's the only way you read the Bible, you've no reason to say to them, no, that's not right. You're a bit stuck. Actually, we need to work with the text, the evidence we've got of what was Paul trying to say and the Holy Spirit trying to say in that first uh, original context. And then once we've established that, only then can we say, how do we apply it? Or as I put it, what impact should it make on us? So how should it shape our thinking? And then what response should we make to that? How should we actually uh, live in our life? And we should note the genre of Romans. Romans is a letter. And you know the type of writing you're reading always makes an impact on how you should read it and how you read it well. Being a letter is discourse, it's ideas rather than narrative, rather than story. And so we're expecting a progression of thoughts rather than a progression of events. And we're expecting to need to trace this kind of progression of thoughts Which very much is the case in Romans, from one seventeen, at least to twelve, probably right to fifteen. Really, is one argument going on and one continual threat, and so we need to learn how do we trace that to really understand what he's saying. And there are two things that help us there. One is understanding connectives, because this argument obviously basically is proposition after proposition after proposition, as in short statement linked together, joined together, flowing together. We want to ask each time, how do these all relate to each other? What are the relationships that helps us to get the flow? Sometimes you work that out just from kind of context, you kind of deduce from how things are put together. But sometimes little words are used, connectives are used to actually show the relationship. And in Greek, connectives are a lot more common than they are in English. In Greek, you have to f- connect every phrase with a connective of some sort. some sort, um, whereas in English we don't do that in the same way at all. And so recognizing or learning to recognize these little words, which are very small but are hugely important, is really helpful. Because often Paul will tell you how the two bits relate to each other. Which is why actually if you're kind of really studying a text like Romans, using quite a literal translation like the ESV is quite helpful because the connectives will be a bit more obvious, a bit more clear there for you. So there are different types. There's literal connectives, like and and also, joining things together. There's contrastive connectives, which are saying things are different from each other, like but, or rather, and however. There are correlative, on the one hand this, but on the other hand this. They're saying how things correlate, or both this and this. There are alternatives, either this or this. See the relationship between the two. There are explanatory connectives, which are very, very important in Romans, where it's saying that what follows explains what came before. So this is true for this because of this reason, or you see that, that is. And then inferential or consequence, which is like the opposite way around. So it's the thing that flows from what has been said. This is true, therefore this. Or this is true, since this. And the most important connected in Romans, the little word to look out for, time and time and time again, is the word for, or gar in Greek. It means that what I've just said is true because of what I'm about to say. And huge swathes of Romans are just a constant sequence of this is true because of this, which is true because of this, which is true because of this. And it goes on and on and on. And noticing that little word for helps you to get those connections. So the classic is this key statement in Romans one. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why not? For it is the power of God for salvation. Why is it the power of salvation? For, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Each one, he's explaining back, taking us on this journey to explain each bit, bit by bit. And so when reading Romans always ask, how do these phrases connect together? What is the link that is going on? What's the relationship? And doing that helps us to trace the flow of the argument as it goes through. And then another way to helpfully trace the argument is to do something called diagramming, which, in a sense, I'll kind of briefly introduce as a thing that would be good to go away and do some of at home, which is just a way of, in a very visual, um, real way in front of you, tracing out those um, connections. And especially, know, if you're wrestling with a particular passage, maybe you're just really stuck on what does this mean, diagramming it is a really helpful way of working out those connections. And what you basically do here is you take your text... You break it down into the different um, kind of propositions, standalone statements on kind of different lines, and then you draw various lines between the different propositions to see they're linking together. And you ask yourself the question: How does this proposition and that proposition relate? What's the type of relationship? And you can then either write a question on the line or an annotation on the line, and you're helping yourself see how it actually works. And you've got this visual picture of the thing in front of you so you've got I think some examples in your notes so we look at Romans 2 1 to 2 you can see first I break it down into the propositions therefore you have no excuse number one oh man every one of you judges number two for in passing judgment or another you condemn yourself number three and so on and so forth but then we're asking well how do those things actually relate to each other what are the links between them so the next one is where you've got lines and you've got annotations on them hopefully you've got that Great. So you can see, therefore, you have no excuse. Well, who has no excuse? Oh, it's this man who judges everyone. So we put a line and we put who. But then, well, why is it the case that they have no excuse? Well, it's because in passing judgment on another, they condemn themselves. And so we're linking that back to the first statement and putting why. Because actually, the, oh, every man of you who judges is kind of a, a subpoint explaining the you. And then we go, well, why is it the case that in passing judgment on another, they condemn themselves? It's because... You, the judge, practice the very same things. It's another why question. And well, why does this matter? Well, so what? We know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. You see how actually by just doing the line, what links to each other, and kind of what is the connection, suddenly can give you so much a, a better understanding and you can do this in like a really formal way. There are very complex, structured ways and annotations people do. I don't bother with any of that. I just <laughs> draw draw lines and literally, I, what's the question being asked? The obvious question is, why? Or the obvious statement is, so what, or because of this? And it's just, uh, as a very visual person, I am, it's a really helpful way of delineating what is going on. I've given you a few other examples there and one you can kind of do if you want to yourself at home or you might get to the end of the day and think there was one particular bit that just I really couldn't get my head around, you might think actually I'm going to diagram that at home and that'll really kind of help you to get your head around it. Great, we're about time for our coffee break, any quick fire questions before we get to coffee? Great, caffeine up, sugar up. We're going to need every second of this hour. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I have preached through the entirety of Romans in thirty-five minutes before, so technically speaking, it should be possible to do an hour. But we'll um, we'll see how we get on. So it was happy how it went. Just about, yeah. It was a bit a bit hairy. Um, so we're going to go through Romans kind of under this theme of the gospel. As I said, I think there's good reason to think this is the central theme of this book, and we're going to go through in the four sections, which most people really agree is how the letter should be divided up. Each one being, in some way, uh, about an outworking of the gospel. The first section we see is the gospel, God's power for present salvation. Then 5 to 8, the gospel, God's power for future salvation. 9 to 11, the gospel, God's power for the fulfilment of his promises. And 12 to 15, or 16 it should be, um, God's power for transformed living. So Paul starts with the introduction in verses 1 to 15, very much from the classic kind of New Testament ancient world letter style, introducing himself and kind of addressing his recipients. And this gospel theme is introduced immediately. In fact, in Greek it's introduced in the ninth word, you immediately get to the gospel and what it is. Because he says his role as an apostle is to bring the gospel of God and then he tells us various things about it. And the gospel, it's important to realise, is just a word that it's a word that means good news. So the gospel is not, you know, a nice story. The gospel is not wisdom. It's not how to live. It's not even an equation of sin plus Jesus equals forgiveness. It is news of what God has done in history through sending his son. Which is why, as Paul explains the gospel in Romans 1 to 4, he tells us the story of what's happened in Christ, not an equation. And we need to remember that. We often, I think, wrongly... Think of what the gospel is. The equation of sin plus Jesus equals forgiveness is part of the gospel, but actually it's part of his much bigger story. It's his gospel. It's the gospel of God. Its origin is in God. It comes from him. We've seen that. He initiates the work of salvation. His promise, he says in the scriptures. It's not a new thing. It's what we should be expecting after we've read through the Old Testament. And it's concerning his son. Ultimately, the gospel is about Jesus. It's not ultimately about us. Ultimately, or well, our problems, our sin, it is about him. Him, we're told, he was descended from David according to the flesh. A reminder that this Jesus is human. He has the human nature uh, and that he's descended from David. I think he? he's linked to the Old Testament promises that what we're saying this king is going to come. It's through this king that God's going to work salvation. He's going to put everything to rights. But he was also the one who's declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. He's human, but he's also the son of God. And he's the son of God. He's declared to be son of God in power. So Paul is not saying that in the resurrection, Jesus becomes the son of God. That is not what the Bible teaches. God, uh, Jesus, for all of eternity past and all eternity future, is God the son, fully God, living with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. But in his, uh, his resurrection, he's declared to be the son of God in power. Something happens about kind of his position, about what's happening in this story, that he ascends to the right hand of the Father, a position of authority. Then in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us he's ruling and reigning until everything is put under his feet. Ultimately, the declaration is the, the the gospel is the declaration of the Son of God taking on his power. Ultimately, the gospel is Jesus is king. If you want to distill the gospel down to its essence, it's Jesus is king, which is exactly what the gospels tell us. The gospel is in the Gospels, is the kingdom of God is at hand. So that's quite different to what we sometimes think of as, um, as the Gospel. And the purpose, Paul says, of his apostleship, as one who's called um, uh, to be a gospel uh, apostle, set apart for the Gospel, the purpose is to bring about the obedience of faith. Again, that's really interesting. I wonder when we preach the Gospel, what we think the purpose of it is. I bet we really say it's that people would come to living obedience to God as an outworking of the faith that they have but for Paul that is the the end goal that's kind of the purpose of what he's doing we're saved from but also saved to as we said under the doctrine but even that actually there's a deeper more ultimate purpose for that the reason he wants to preach the gospel that people come to the obedience of faith is ultimately he says for the sake of his name Again, we said salvation is about the glory of God. Ultimately, the reason God saves, ultimately the reason Paul preaches the gospel is for the sake of his name, that God might be worshipped, glory might be brought to him. And we'll see soon in Romans 1 that the essence of sin is a misdirected worship. And therefore it's unsurprising that actually uh, salvation and restoration is about a rightly directed worship. Salvation is about right worship being given to God. And then in 8 to 13, Paul's explaining his desire to visit Rome, some of the stuff some of you read, he wants to go there, be a blessing to them, a mutual blessing. And he flows into the fact that he is under this sense of obligation in verse 14, this, this kind of debt he has to preach the gospel. He's got this thing which he's been giving and he has to discharge it, has to pass it on to other people, and he's eager to do that in Rome too. Verse 15, he's eager to come to Rome and to preach the gospel to them as well. And note the side note, he wants to come and preach the gospel to the Christians in Rome. The gospel is as needed by us as Christians as it is by our non-Christian friends and family. You never, you know, kind of progress beyond the gospel. You never get beyond the point where you're on to more important stuff. The gospel is always what we need. The gospel is the very heart of how we live, the heart of what we cling to, the heart of our relationship with God. And the whole rest of the letter flows from this statement that he is eager, in verse 15, to preach the gospel also to the guys in Rome. The very next verse starts with that word, for. He's going to explain why he's eager to preach the gospel in Rome, which means Romans is a missional letter. It's not some random systematic theology Paul thought, wouldn't it be nice to write down all this stuff about Jesus? He said, I'm on the mission of God, and here is why I'm so desperately passionate to preach the gospel, and desperately eager to come to you in Rome and to preach the gospel. And verses 16 and 17, the explanation of that are, in a sense, the key kind of a thesis statement, topic statement, from which everything else flows. Note in these, the importance of connectives. It's the example I used earlier, actually. The reason he's so eager to preach the gospel to them in Rome is because he knows, because he is not ashamed of the gospel. And that's because he knows the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He knows the gospel is power. It's not just words, it's not just clever ideas or wise, uh, wise words, wise wisdom, it's power from God to save to everyone and anyone, both the Jew and the Greek. Notice that theme emerging already because of the divisions in the church. And he says it's God's power to save because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. This is a hugely important verse. This was the verse over which Martin Luther, the reformer, had his real kind of breakthrough of realising what the righteousness of God really was. And it's a complex thing. There are three different potential meanings to that phrase, the righteousness of God. Righteousness ultimately is about rightness, doing what's right. We've kind of seen that already. It could be here about God's character, that God is righteous in his character, as in he does what what he should do. So it could be saying that actually in the gospel it's revealed that God is righteous because as we'll see, because he sent Jesus, he can righteously justify all righteous sinners. It could be saying God's character is upheld by the gospel. It could be saying it's about God's action. In the Old Testament you find salvation and righteousness are often placed in parallel to each other and God's righteousness can be another word for his salvation, for his acting to save his people. So it could be about God's activity, what he does. Or it could be about God's gift. You see, we need to be righteous to be able to be in relationship with God. And in Romans 5, we'll talk about the gift of righteousness, that God gives to us the righteousness that we don't have. So we could be saying that in the Gospel, there's a revelation of this gift that God gives to us, a gift of righteousness. And in a sense, it's like that all three actually are kind of meant to be evoked in this key statement. All those different levels of meaning are there Perhaps with a little focus on that last one, the gift of righteousness. It tends to be in Paul that when righteousness is linked to faith, it's about a gift God gives to us. When faith isn't mentioned in the immediate context, it's about God's character and God's action. And here we're told it's the revelation of the righteousness of God um, from faith and for faith, i.e. it's utterly by faith. So he's probably primarily thinking of the gift of faith that God gives to us. And he actually quotes from Habakkuk 2 knows that the minor prophets are an absolute gold mine and they really are. Get to the minor prophets. I'm doing some work on them at the moment. They're brilliant. Um, in Habakkuk 2, where Habakkuk has basically said, God, how can you let the people continue to rebel against you? He says, don't worry. I'll send the Babylonians to invade them and deal with it. He says, God, how can you send the Babylonians to invade? They're even worse than we are. And he says, don't worry the thing to do is to trust in the promise. He promises this vision of uh, deliverance that's going to come. He says the thing to do is to trust. The righteous one, he says, will live by trust, by faith. Paul sees in that uh, an explanation of how God always works through his people, that actually receiving the salvation of God is always by faith. And so that's what he introduces here. And the next three chapters will be an outworking of this revelation of the righteousness of God by faith. Because he knows that before we can talk about the gift of righteousness given to us, the righteousness we can have, the saving power of the gospel, he's got to explain to us the dire situation we're in that means we need saving. In a sense, you can't see how bright the light is until you see how dark the darkness is. You can't see how good the solution is until you know how bad the problem is. And so chapters 1 through to 3.20 are all about the problem of the revelation of God's wrath. We've had the revelation of his righteousness, but also got the revelation of his wrath. And that's the problem, which means we need the righteousness. He says, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed, present tense, it's being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath is his just and fair judgment against and punishment of sin. And he says, right now, that is being poured out on the unrighteous. And in kind of four sections, he explains the nature of this problem. So in one, chapter one, verses 18 to 32, He's explaining that God's wrath is presently poured out against the unrighteous for their suppression of truth. And the suppression of truth, he says, is we can look around us and we can know that God exists. He says no one has the excuse for saying, I didn't know God was there. He said there is enough in the world that God has created that shows us he's there and means we should know deep in our being that we should live in thankfulness and gratitude to God. That ultimately we should live as worshippers of God And yet it says every one of us, we forget that truth, we worship the created rather than the creator. There's that that exchange of we worship things down here rather than actually worshipping him. That's what sin is at base, worshipping the created rather than worshipping the Creator. disordered worship. And because of that, we're unrighteous. And therefore God judges. And the way he judges is by handing us over to our sin. Three times in the passage, he talks about God gave them over to this, that or the other. Gave them over to continuing sin. The way that God, present tense, pours out his wrath on unbelievers is he lets them continue in their sin. Because actually sin will never bring fullness of life. Which as a side note, is really helpful to notice. You know. Why on earth would we choose to continue in sin when if we weren't in Christ, it's the way God would punish us. It's so literally <laughs> absurd to think, oh great, I can keep sinning. No, why on earth would you do that? God would use that to punish you if he were going to punish you. He says right now that's happening. Punishment is being poured out. God's wrath is being poured out in that way. And then chapter 2, he knows that some of his Jewish readers particularly might be listening and thinking, yeah, those Gentiles, they're terrible. All that idol worship, all that worship of the Creator, not the Creator. Oh, thank goodness we're not like them. And Paul kind of turns and points the finger and says, no, no, you are just as much under condemnation of them. Because ultimately, he says, you do the same thing. He said, every person will be judged according to what they've done. And he said, you will be shown to be as unrighteous as they have been. Because he says, God shows no partiality. It's that conflict between Jews and Gentiles, but he said, no, God's going to treat both Jews and Gentiles equally. And he knows from verse 17 in chapters onwards, the Jews will object. The Jews will go, no, no, Paul, we're fine, honestly. We're circumcised. We've got the law. We'll be fine. They'll protect us. There'll be absolutely no problem on judgment day. Paul's like, no, no, those things can't do anything. Externally on their own, they can't do anything. And nothing external can save you. There's no magic talisman that can protect you from the wrath of God in that way. It has to be an internal thing. It had to be circumcision of the heart. Harking back to the language of Deuteronomy, that actually had to be a heart salvation, a heart work. It has to be new birth. It has to be the effectual call. It has to be something that happened deep inside. Nothing external can protect them. And so in 3, 9 to 10, he can use this whole stream of Old Testament texts to show that everybody, Jew and Gentile, is unrighteous before God, stands under the judgment of God. We're in this... Terrible, terrible position. We need saving from the wrath of God. And just to put a real kind of kicker, verse 20, he says, oh, by the way, the law can't help you. The law will show your sin, but the law cannot save you. So the one thing you might think, well, if I try really hard to follow that, I'll be all right. Even that, he says, no, no, it's not going to do it. You get to 3.20, and you're meant to be despairing of, oh, my goodness, every single one of us has no hope unless God does something because he is right to judge us and right to condemn us. Which is why you get the wonder of the revelation of the righteousness of God in the gospel, 321 onwards. The solution is almost too amazing to be true. Let's not think that, I dwell on the gospel, it's almost too good to be true, and yet it's true because the word of God says it, that now there's the revelation of righteousness, there's God's righteousness given to those who are unrighteous as a gift. 323, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, you know, chapter 1 to 3, we don't meet the mark that God puts for us. The glory of God in Romans 1 is about the created order. We fail to reach, uh, to kind of live in line with that. But then he says, I justified, I declared righteous, placed in a right legal standing with God by his grace as a gift. It's given, it's received, not achieved. Uh, a gift, this salvation as a gift, gift of right legal standing. Which, of course, should make us think because we know Proverbs seventeen fifteen. But wait, how can God do that? You may to justify the righteous and judge the wicked or condemn the wicked. How can he do that? He can do it because of Jesus. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Jesus is that missing term we've talked about. He makes it right and just and fair for God to say you're a sinner. And yet I'm justifying you, declaring you not guilty. And the word propitiation is debated and complex. It could mean mercy seat. So elsewhere in the New Testament, it's translated mercy seat, which was the place in the um, temple and tabernacle, uh, right at the very heart of where God lived, where the blood was taken on the Day of Atonement and such like. It could mean expiation. Sorry, yeah. What's the word? Pro- I'm not even quite sure. It's like propitiation is what I say. Pro- propitiation, which might not be, to be honest, how you pronounce it. Propitiation. Mm. Possibly. I don't know the etymology. Sorry. I could tell you more about the Greek than I could the English. I don't know. Sorry. Um, um, I don't know. Expiation, sometimes it's translated as, which is about the removal of guilt. It's kind of the idea of it being like a disinfectant, which kind of cleans away guilt. Or some translations, the best translation, I think, is this idea of propitiation, which is the idea of appeasing anger or pacifying someone. So expiation is tends to be from people who don't think God really gets angry. And so actually the issue isn't God's anger, the issue is you're a bit messy and you're guilt, so you wash away that. But actually we know from Romans 1 to 3, the issue is very clearly God's anger, God's wrath. That has to be turned away, that has to be appeased, The, the price has to be paid. So this word is saying that in Christ's death, the wrath of God is satisfied, the price is paid. That is poured out on Jesus, so it doesn't get poured out on us. God doesn't justify sinners by overlooking sin, because that would be utterly unjust. He justifies us by putting his wrath on his son um, against our sin so that it doesn't fall on us. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the, the one that people rightly, I think, say that Romans twenty three, twenty three, twenty four 23, 24 are the very heart of the gospel, the very heart of the Bible. The thing that makes it all make sense. And then as we said earlier, this means that God can be just and the justifier of the ungodly. The death of Christ is the thing that makes it possible for God to be both of those things. And having talked about the revelation of the righteousness of God, he then goes on to that from faith for faith bit, the Habakkuk 2 bit, because in the end of Romans 3, chapter 4, he's saying this is by faith alone. Therefore, there's no right to boast. You can't boast and say, oh yeah, I've been justified because I did this or that. So no, There's no place for boasting because it was never anything you did, it's all what he did. And chapter four is all about showing that's actually always how God has done that. That justification and rightly standing with God has always been by faith. He says you see that in Abraham, he believed God and he credited it to him his righteousness. You see it in um, David. Actually, uh, there's the quote from the Psalms where his sins are uh, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed are the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. He's shown that God has always worked in this way, which is why statement four was false. It's not true that God has always saved people in completely different ways. There are some differences, but ultimately individual salvation, legal standing before God has always been, do you trust in God to save you? At, at base, that kind of is how salvation works beginning to end. So Romans 1 to 4 shows that present salvation, that legal declaration right now is available to any one of us because of what God has done in Jesus, received through faith. Which means that when you turn to Romans 5, you think that's wonderful but I still know that I've got to stand before Jesus on Judgment Day. I still know there's a verdict still to come. How do I know that when I get to that point, he will still say not guilty, he'll still say righteous? How can I be confident about that? And that, I think, is the best answer to what Paul is doing in Romans 5 to 8. It's striking that both at the start of this section and at the end, he talks about future glory, he talks about hope. He starts and ends, bookends, with talking about that. And actually, the opening section in kind of 5... 6 to 11, he explains the confidence really clearly. He says, because of the lesser thing, we can trust the greater thing. If, he says, if Christ is justified by us by by his blood, then of course he'll save us on Judgment Day. If that's already happened now, of course he'll do that later. Or he says, if actually we were reconciled, even when we're enemies, we were reconciled to God by Christ's death, of course now we're already reconciled, we'll be saved by his life then. He's saying if someone lays on a humongous banquet for you but they forget to give you a knife and fork of course they'll give you a knife and fork and ask for it because why would they do this huge thing and then not do the little thing? He's saying if God's already done this for you of course when you get there he will justify you on that day. He talks in two ways here. He talks about the confidence we have because of the nature of salvation in the huge thing he's done already means we know he'll do that on the final day but also the nature of salvation in that salvation is being moved into Christ. So Paul says we all start in Adam, because we're in Adam, we're in his group and we get what his group deserves. It's like back at school when one kid did something wrong, no one owned up so everyone gets in trouble. We all get the results of the one action. We all get the results of what Adam does, that's what he says, we all become sinners in him. But actually what happens when we trust in Christ, we're moved out of Adam, we're placed into Christ. And so now we receive the results of Christ's actions, we receive what Christ deserves and that is a secure position. So he's saying your salvation isn't that you kind of had a bit of a spring clean, but then you've done a few things wrong, and you get a bit mucky again, if you don't repent, you're going to die, and it's not going to be justification or Judgment Day. He's saying, no, no, you're in Christ. You can't hop in and out of Christ. So you might feel like you're hopping out, but you can't hop in and out of Christ. You're there, you're secure, you are always justified, therefore you can know you will be saved on Judgment Day. So chapter 6, though, Paul knows that we're thinking, okay, that sounds really good. Does that mean I can just do whatever I want in the interim? What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In the sense it actually doesn't really matter what I do. He just said at the end of five that where there was more sin, there was more grace. Great, let's sin more. There'll be more grace. Now Paul says, no, by no means, absolutely not. He's like, that's an absurd idea. He gives two, or has two sections explaining why that is. Verses 2 to 14, we don't continue in sin because we've been united to Christ. Having been united to Christ, this is you, this is Christ united, you've died with him. When he died, you were buried with him, and you're then raised to walk in newness of life with him. That means that your old body of sin, it it died with him. It's no longer alive. The, The you which was captive to sin, which couldn't but do its bidding, is set free from that. You're now free to not sin. You're free to live the way that God's created you to live in truthfulness of life. And he says this has happened, and therefore you've got to live as if it's true. You've got to reckon it, consider it to be true, and choose not to uh, kind of give your members over to sin. Well, in fifteen to twenty-three he says the same, just through a different metaphor, the metaphor of slavery. He says, previously, you were enslaved to sin. You had to do its bidding, as a slave has to do what the master, the slave master, tells it to do. But when a slave dies, it's no longer under the power of its slave master. We well, died with Christ. We're not longer under the power of sin. We don't have to do its bidding. It will try to lure you. It will tell you you have to do this and that that it wants you to do, but you don't have to. We are free, we are empowered to not sin. And Paul says these things are true because you are in Christ. And therefore now he says, reckon it to be so. Consider it to be so. Choose to live out the truth. Even when it doesn't feel like it, it's true. When you get off the plane somewhere else, you're told the time is now, you know, five hours different to what your watch says. You might not feel like that's true, but it is true. You've got to reckon it to be true. You've got to start living as if that is true, because it is true. Paul says you're no longer enslaved to sin, so live as if it is true, because it is already true. Christian life now isn't a life abandoned to sin. It's a life enjoying freedom from slavery to sin, freedom to live God's way. And within chapter 6, Paul makes this statement. He says, sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law, but under grace. Fascinating statement. So the reason sin doesn't have control over you is because you're now under God's grace, not under God's law. Which is a side note is really interesting. You know, we kind of think you no know, grace can easily lead people to sin. The Paul says being under grace should mean you're no longer captive to sin. But it raises big questions about the law. We're into chapter seven now. Does that mean the law was a bad thing? Wasn't the law given by God? Wasn't the law meant to help? Wasn't the law like a special thing, a gift of God? Was the law bad? Was the law even sinful? And actually, where does the law fit in in this time of waiting for Jesus to come back or us going to be with Jesus? How does the law actually um, fit in? What role does it play now? And Paul starts with the first, uh, so the second question of what role does the law play now? He reminds us again, we've died with Christ. When you die, you're no longer under the law of the land. You're free from that. He uses marriage as an example. There's a, a legal binding contract between a husband and a wife. But when one of them dies, that is broken because death breaks the power of law. He says, you in Christ, you died in Christ. You've died to the law. It has no power over you. It has no authority to point and accuse. It has no binding um, authority, nothing over you. And now, he says, instead, you are unable to live in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The way you live as a Christian is not by striving to try and keep the law. It's by being empowered and transformed by the Holy Spirit. We're no longer captive to the law. When it comes to you and says, oh yeah, but look, God says do this, this and this. You've not done all this and this. It has no right to accuse us because we're in Christ. And then he comes to the question, well, is the law bad though? What's the law the problem? Did something go wrong there? Is the law even sin, he says? Kind of from verse uh, hmm, th- 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 7 onwards. He says, no, no, the law isn't bad. He explains to us the law is good and holy and righteous, but sin was dwelling in us. And sin used the law. It, it abused it, used it to tempt us and cause us to go astray. It took hold of the law and used it to make us do the wrong thing because law can never save. Law has no power. It's only instructions. It has no power to change, no power to actually do anything in us. We need to be set free from sin to be able to live God's way. It just the law wasn't bad. The law was good and holy, righteous, but sin used the law. It abused it, it took hold of it. In mean, 13 to 25, Paul starts to talk in the first person, a very famous I passage or ego passage, which always raises this big question, well, who is this person? There's this kind of figure of saying, I really want to do this, and yet I find myself doing this, and the thing I really want to do, I don't do, the thing I don't want to do, I do, and they're in these terrible kind of knots and getting tangled up. And there's this age-old question of, who's talking? Is it Paul the Christian? Is it Paul before he was a Christian? Is it a Jew under the law? Is it a person between regeneration and justification who's kind of in this funny no man's land? He says things like, I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate I do. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. He even says, Wretched man and I, who will deliver me from this body of death? This figure, whoever they are, is in great anguish about what's going on. And some people do think this is Paul the Christian. They think that the sad the kind of inevitability of Christian life between justification and, uh, and death or the return of Jesus is you really want to live God's way, but actually you're still enslaved or your sin still has power over you. you are, you're unable to live God's way. Many of us going kind to of read it that way because we think, I can relate. I do the things I really don't want to do and the things I really want to do, I feel like I don't do them. But actually it's very hard, I think, to square the idea that Paul is talking here as a Christian with what he says about a Christian in the chapters either side. It's very hard to think that he's being consistent if he is saying that. So just a few quick examples. 7.23, he talks about the power of sin making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He talks as this figure of one whose the law of sin is dwelling in him. He's captive to it because we have seen Romans 6, he says we're no longer captive to sin. We're free from that slavery. It doesn't hold us in that way. Or 7.14, we know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. But then 8.19, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. It's very hard to say that this is a Christian, given what Paul says about Christians in the chapters either side. And even actually the other hint, I think, is 24, he says, Wretched man am I, who would deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. I hint, hint, nudge, nudge, there is an answer. I'm not still there. That should almost be in brackets of actually, don't forget, this isn't where we are as Christians. So I'm very thoroughly convinced that this cannot be what Christian experience is meant to be like. This is some sort of experience outside of Christ, whether that be a Jew under the law, whether that just be um, anyone outside of Christ. And in a sense, I'm always torn by this question. In a sense, it's a distraction because Paul is talking about the law, not about us. And so sometimes I kind of want to say, well, let's stop the debate because the issue is the law is holy and good and righteous. But actually, the dangerous thing is if we do believe this is what Christian life should be like, you get into this very defeated situation of, of course, I've spent my whole life doing all the stuff I don't want to do, struggling to do the stuff I want to do. It's a very sad kind of situation to bleed you in, and it will cause you to resign yourself to allowing sin mastery in your life, which will ultimately rob your joy. It's not, I think, a good position to want to live in or to be in. And I'm thoroughly convinced it can't be a Christian that Paul is talking about. Thank and part of the reason... Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Good. Part of the reason is because of what Paul says in the next chapter. He talks about the, the opposite of what Christian life should be. Christian life isn't abandoning yourself to sin, Romans 6. It's not being captive to the condemnation of the law and being unable to do what um, God wants you to do, Romans 7. It is life in the spirit. He said this um, in Romans 7. You know, we're uh, now living in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the living code. Normal Christian life is life in the spirit. And Romans 8 describes what should be normal everyday Christian life. Sometimes we read Romans 8 and we think, it sounds so amazing. If only I could get there. This is you. This is normal Christian life today in between your justification and the return of Jesus. So he starts with total freedom from condemnation. First verse, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's harking back to Romans 5. He moved out of Adam into Christ. There's not one hint of condemnation. If you're a Christian, you can never, ever, ever again come under the condemnation of God. Guilt. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. so guilt, punishment, um, yeah, being condemned and therefore deserving of punishment. He says it can never happen. There's not, he's emphatic, the wording is emphatic. There's not one bit, he's saying, of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He points back to the fact that we're in Christ by saying that, but he also points forward the next two verses because he says that the Holy Spirit has kind of applied to us the, um, the blessings of what Christ has done. I'm preaching this tomorrow, if you're in the venues I'm in tomorrow, and actually how we take hold of, this is true of us, how do we live in it? Um, I had to ask Andy, I remember. Lady Bonus centre. But don't, you know, go to your normal place. Don't abandon your people. I'll feel really guilty if i done that. And then he says, interestingly, the purpose of this being freedom from condemnation, this is verse 4, is that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the reason God frees us from condemnation is so that we can fulfill the law. This thing of forgiveness is meant to lead to living God's way. It's the obedience of Faith. for Paul salvation isn't you're forgiven go off do whatever no it's now you get to live God's way and he explains more about that that actually it's about setting our mind on the things of God the things of the spirit transforming our thinking as we'll come back to in order that our living would be transformed at verse 14 onwards he says being led by the spirit also means being adopted by God this is part of the chain. you've got justification into adoption we've already talked about those four blessings that come from being adopted by God And almost the entirety of the rest of Romans 8, as I mentioned, is designed to convince and persuade and show us that when we suffer as children of God, which every one of us who's a child of God will do, we can know with utter, utter certainty that God still loves us. He says at first we can know it because of the future. This is 18 to 25. Because of the certain hope of the coming new creation, we can know that God loves us. Because whatever the suffering might be, however awful it might be, we know that something's better coming. We know we have the hope of glory. We have the hope of everything being put us to right. Every tear wiped away and enjoying perfection with him. We can know it because of the present. This is astounding. Verses 26, 7. We know it because the Holy Spirit prays for us. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I don't think this is the gift of language, the gift of tongues, because that's pretty kind of wordy. this seems to be the Spirit himself, He, he, he who lives inside of us, so he knows intimately what we're feeling in that suffering. And he who knows God perfectly, he intercedes, he prays for us. When you suffer, the Holy Spirit, who knows you inside out, prays for you before God the Father. That's astounding. And Paul says, because of that, you can know, no matter what happens, God loves you. And also, we've got the future, we've got the present, we've got the past. Really famous verses, we can know that God works all things for the good of those who love him. And often we kind of stop the quote there and we think, well, how do you know it? You've got to read the next two verses, which is where you get that chain, that order of salvation. We know it because if God has already uh, foreknown us and predestined us and called us and justified us and promised to glorify us, of course he's going to work all things for good. If God's already done that, of course he's going to do this. He says, when you suffer, look forward to the future. Think about the present. Remember what God's done in the past. It shows you that God still loves you. There can be no question however you suffer as a child of God, that God still loves you. And he closes just with this wonderful declaration of the certainty of God doing us, the certainty of him accepting us as righteous, the certainty of never being separated from his love. Let me read it because it's so good. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God will always do us good. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who's at the right hand of God, and indeed is interceding for us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long; we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is normal Christian life. This is what you and I, this is true for you and I. This is what we're meant to enjoy. As we await the return of Jesus, or we await our going to be with Him. And Paul says, because of all this, we can know that we'll be saved on that final day. Chapter 6 and 7 are kind of slight digressions. They're not digressions, they're side notes explaining things that come out of this. They explain what Christian life is like now, but actually, we know because of what God's already done, He'll save us on that day. We know because of what Christian life is like now, and the hope of glory we have, He will save us on that day. We can be certain in the moment we're justified that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, he will make that exact same verdict. You are righteous and welcome us in to life with him. And then we reach 9 to 11. Now, Paul at this point could very easily and kind of sensibly have gone into what does that spirit-filled life look like in the real nitty-gritty, even actually how you live your life day to day. But he doesn't do that. He inserts chapters 9 to 11 first because he knows there's another very big topic he needs to tackle first. In fact, he kind of expresses the fact he's really heartbroken at what's happened. And we often kind of see these chapters as a bit of an odd digression, as something a bit too complex and confusing, or even just irrelevant to us. But actually, fundamentally, Paul is asking huge questions about who God is. And so they're vitally important to us. He's utterly heartbroken because, as he puts it, my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Because so many of the Jewish people haven't actually accepted Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, and he's wrestling with this thing of God promised to send the Deliverer, he's come, and yet so many of the people haven't actually responded to him. And he raises these questions of, well, is God not faithful to his promises? Or maybe God wants to be faithful to his promises, but actually he's just not powerful enough to be able to do that. So he's raises huge questions about just who God actually is. And so he gives them the answer, as I said, there are these two kind of parallel lines. He says, no, no, God is faithful and God is able, this situation, he says, is because of God's election and because of people's unbelief. So, Chapter 9, particularly, focuses on God's election. He says it's not as if the word of God has failed. That's where he uses the examples we talked about, Jacob and Esau and Pharaoh, to show the election that actually God's always works by choosing some. It's always been his plan. He says it's the children of the promise who receive this. He points out that Isaac, the son of Abraham and Sarah, he wasn't the first child. He wasn't the natural child even. He was... A miracle child, in a sense. He was the result of the promise of God. Actually, he was the line through whom the promises of God would be inherited. And that wasn't a natural connection, in a sense. Yes, he was born biologically, but he was kind of a miracle child, a result of the promise of God, not just the result of human action. Paul says that's really significant. It's always been the children of promise whom God has promised to save, not just the biological children of Abraham. And he knows that there are potential objections to this. People ask, well, is it really fair if it's the case that God chooses someone, that's why they respond and what others don't? If God hardens heart, well how can we find hope? how can he find fault in people if actually what how they live is ultimately because of something that he has done? And what's really interesting is Paul doesn't even try to give a logical answer to that. He just says, Who are you, O oh man? to answer back to God. Well what's moulded say to its moulder, Why have you made me like this? He basically says, Yeah, there's all these questions, but he's God and we're not. And who are we to answer back? Which in our modern, Western, post enlightenment sensibilities, we don't like. We're like, of course we should understand. God should give us an answer. No, no, no. He's God. We're the creator. He's the creator. He doesn't have to give us an answer. We maybe wouldn't understand the answer. <clears throat> but then he does go on this kind of. Um, that's when he has this stuff. Uh, um, verse 22 What if God, desiring to show his wrath, And to make known his power has endured as much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. In order, the purpose being to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which is prepared beforehand for glory. There seems to be some sense in which the fact that not everyone is saved makes the fact that some are even more glorious. I think that is what Paul is saying. If you have something, there seems to be some sense in which the fact that not all are saved makes the fact that some are saved even more glorious. If you have something you think is white, but you put it against something that is perfectly white, suddenly it comes into contrast, you suddenly realise. Contrast makes things more clear. And it seems to be that God is motivated ultimately by his glory, and the way he is best glorified is by saving someone, not others. That seems to be what Paul is saying. I think those verses are the closest we get to an answer to the question of why does God save someone, not others. And you know, There's a huge, weighty... Weighty questions, weighty things. Andrew, yeah. Can I, can I just throw a thought in there, which I was going to say earlier when we when we covered this point back at creation, mm. at the beginning, of God's plan. Because when Adam sinned, at that point God could have judged the whole thing, and nobody would have been saved, yeah. and God would have been righteous to judge it straight yeah. away. But because of His great compassion and love he then waited and is yeah. still waiting for the end so that all those who can be saved will be saved yeah. which is the sort of the converse of what we were looking at to do with mm-hmm. those who were not elected and who not going to be saved yeah, yeah absolutely yeah and even the very, the very fact that any human experiences life is going out to the grace of God if we're all born in sin under the judgement of God he should kill us all immediately so when you read the Bible and God kills people, how can God kill people? No, no. The wonder is not that God killed some people. The wonder is God hasn't killed all of us already. Yeah. That's what he should do, a just God. So any allowance to live human life. It's interesting, you, in the Old Testament particularly, so we, we pose the question of suffering particularly, the question of how can a good God allow people to suffer. The Old Testament poses the question, how can a good God allow bad people to have good things? completely flips it on our head. And we as modern Westerners, have a very back-to-front view because we have a sense of entitlement of who we are because ultimately we tend to think we're God, not God, and put ourselves in his position. And when you actually realise, no, none of us should even exist for a moment, every moment, God's grace is upon every person in that, to that level to that extent. That's really helpful, thank you, yeah. So chapter 9, he focuses on the, the, the answer to this question is God's election, but then chapter 10, he says, equally in answer to the question is the fact of people's choice. Kind of from 9.30 this is onto it. Because the people have disbelieved. They've uh, sought the uh, inheritance of God's promises, but they sought it by the law, rather than by trusting in God. They've heard the gospel, he says. The gospel has gone out, he says, to all people, in the sense of it's kind of gone out enough that people have had the chance to hear it, and yet, he says, they choose not to respond to it. He places these things completely in parallel. He says people are morally culpable for that decision. And so in chapter 11, he gets to, well, does that mean God's rejected his people? because the Jews aren't responding to Jesus. And again, Paul said, no, by no means. He said, look at me. He says, I'm proof. I'm a Jew. He says, I'm proof that God is saving some Jewish people. He says, God is saving a remnant. And he goes back to the story of Elijah. There's an, when, when so many people are turned away from God, but God says to Elijah, he's kept a number of people who are still faithful to Yahweh, who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. He's actually, no, there's always a remnant. That's, that's how God works. And then it kind of gets even more mysterious, more complicated. He starts to talk about the fact that there's some mysterious purpose in this. It's not something that's gone wrong. God's working out a plan, and somehow there's a plan, there's a purpose that Gentiles are being welcomed in and that's somehow meant to make Jewish people jealous, and that somehow that will lead to the Jews being drawn in. And so He warns the Gentiles don't get kind of arrogant about your position, because actually you're the wild branches grafted into a natural olive tree. Of course, the natural olive branches, as in the Jews, can come back in as well. And he says this is a mystery. He says, there's a partial hardening is coming Israel until the fullness of Gentiles coming. And then just to make it so much more confusing, he then says, verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. What does that mean? Does that mean all Jewish people? Does it mean the elect within the Jewish people? Does it mean actually that Christians as the new Israel? And we could spend plenty of time with this. I don't think it can be the first. I don't think it can be the case that it's all Jewish people because the Bible is really clear, if you don't respond to Jesus, then there's not salvation. It could be all the elects within the Jewish people, the children of promise, not the biological children, as he said in Romans 9. It could be all Christians of the new Israel. In Galatians 6, Paul talks about the church as the new Israel. It could be anyone. But basically, there is something God is doing. There's a purpose in this. That somehow, God is going to save all Israel, whatever that means, through what he's doing. It's not random, in a sense. God is working something out. And again, Paul gets to the point where, as he looks at the great complexity of this relationship between God's sovereignty and human freedom and these things, we just can't understand, we can't go our heads round. Again, it doesn't lead him to trying to work things out, trying to give a logical answer. It doesn't lead him to even frustration or even accusations. It leads him to worship. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? or who is giving a gift to him that he might be prepaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I just think there's so much to be learnt there, actually. Of actually, when we reach the point of, I can't understand this, God, and this seems the contrary to contradict this, and how does that work? It's not then, God, you've got to give me an answer, or I'm frustrated with you, it's, I'm going to worship. It's almost when we reach that point of, I can't understand this, we're reminded again, we're the created, he's the creator, therefore we worship. Even just seeing how Paul handles things, there's such an example to learn from and to follow. And so having tackled that question, he now can do the question of what does the life in the spirit? He talks about Romans What does it look like? No, kind of rubber hits the road, kind of real life kind of stuff. And all of chapters 1 to 11 have been primarily about truth, what God has done, uh, facts, the statements what God has done, and now it becomes what's how we should respond, how we should live. It's the power of the gospel, the power of the gospel for transformed living. And verses 1 to 2 of 12 with this kind of transition passage, like a, a bridge between the God's done this and now we're going to do this. A therefore passage, I appeal to you therefore. Key connective. Because of all of this, this is true. Because of all this, you should go and do this. And it's interesting, what he says in these two verses shows that salvation, unsurprisingly, is an undoing of the effects of sin that we saw in Romans 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual or rational worship. Chapter 1 was all about misdirected worship. Now Christian living is about right, rational, spiritual worship. In chapter 1 there is the dishonouring of our bodies in sin. Here our bodies are offered to God in worship. The gospel is the reversal, the undoing of the effects of sin. Well, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In Romans 1, because of our suppression of the truth and our choice to sin, we became futile in our thinking, Paul says. Here, we're told that our thinking is to be renewed, to be transformed. Again, there's a reversal of the effects of sin, and that our living flows from our thinking. But actually, to live God's way starts from thinking God's way. And Paul then goes on to give very practical examples. And You'll see if you read through them, almost all of them are about kind of interpersonal relationships, i.e. You know, how you relate to other people, because he knows that there's all this division in the Roman church. It's a very situational letter. He's addressing what's going on in that context, especially Jews and Gentiles being united. And so 12.3 through to 13.14 is largely a set of kind of quick-fire um, instructions or kind of a commands, instructions, ways to live. All things that are outworking this transformed thinking almost all of which are about how you relate to other people. And then in of 13, he talks about submission to authorities, again, which is about how you relate to other people. So that God has put ruling authorities in place to do his work, and therefore we are to live as Christians in submission to them. In the second half of chapter 13, he's explaining that all of this, all of Christian living can be summarised actually in the command to love one another. He's actually the whole of the law can be summarized in the love your neighbor command, as Jesus kind of said. And he says that now we do that as the loving one another command. He said the one who's love, who loves another, is fulfilling the law. And it's really fascinating because Paul's you know, adamant we're not under the power of the law and the authority of the law. And yet the law is still good because it does reveal God's heart. It's what God wants, but actually it can't help us. It can't empower us. The way we live this out now is by being renewed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. 14 and 15, the last big topic that Paul tackles, he actually kind of finally comes, I guess, to the big issue he knows is happening in the church. There's tension between them, between what he calls the weak and the strong. So it seems there are two groups, probably part of the kind of Jewish-Gentile division, some of whom have one view and some of whom have another. And so, for example, the, uh, the weak think that they can't eat meat, probably because most meat in the ancient world have been sacrificed to idols. So the butchers were also the guys who sacrificed meat for idols. So any meat you ate, usually would have been sacrificed to an idol. Whereas the strong think, no, it's fine, because there's nothing behind the idol, we can eat that anyway. Uh, the weak think we should keep uh, kind of special uh, days, special holy days, festivals. The strong say, no, we don't need to do that. And what's going on here is it's not them saying we need to do this to earn salvation or earn justification. It's saying we love God, or we want to honour him, and therefore we think this is the best way to live life. That's really important to recognise. So these are what we call disputable matters. It's not a salvation issue actually, it's about how do we best honour God, which is why what Paul says here, even about food, is completely different to what he says in Galatians. In Galatia, people are saying you have to trust in Jesus and you have to keep the food laws to be in the people of God. And Paul says, no, that's wrong. Utterly wrong. Faith in Jesus is the only thing. But here, people are saying we trust in Jesus for salvation, and we think the best way to honour him and love him is to keep the food laws. And Paul is actually okay with that. It's a radically different situation as whether or not this is a thing about how we stand before God. Because what's really interesting is Paul clearly sides with the strong, not the weak. And yet the way he teaches is not to say, this is why the strong are right, therefore weak, you need to catch up and kind of live this way as well. He doesn't actually do that at all. He says the key thing is for them to maintain unity. He says, you're strong, you shouldn't cause the weak to stumble. So don't cause them to do something that goes against their conscience. He says to the weak, don't judge the strong for acting in line with their uh, conscience. He actually doesn't explicitly give the answers on what is right or wrong. His concern is unity. All these people are seeking to honour God the best way they can. And so his concern is for them to be united um, in that, to display the unity of the Gospel, so that in that, Jew and Gentile can come together. And At the very beginning of 15, he there draws in the example of Christ. He says, actually, we do this by following the example of Christ. He says Christ didn't act for his own pleasure. He acted to please others. He thought about others. He put others first. He laid down his rights and his opportunities in order to please others in order to do good for others. He says follow the example of Christ. Actually, if you go to dinner and you really want to have the big steak, but you know it's going to offend the conscience of your friend, you lay down your right to have the big steak, and you eat the vegetables. He saying that's a way you uh, love one another. That's a way you maintain unity together. Let each of us, 15 to, please his neighbour for his good, to build him up, for Christ did not please himself. But as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He's saying Christ acted in our interest, took stuff upon us, he paid a huge price for us, and therefore we can pay a price to bless our fellow brothers and sisters. And therefore, that flows into a kind of, what, 8, 15 8 to 13 He talks about the Gentiles being drawn and the Jews being drawn. The letter actually ends, or the argument of the letter ends, on the notion of Jews and Gentiles are equally drawn to the people of God. That is, in many ways, what the letter is about. And then, just in conclusion, Paul kind of returns really to the beginning. He returns to his desire to go to preach the gospel in Rome, and then in Spain, he's going to go to Jerusalem first. He wants Rome to be his kind of stopping point on the way to Jerusalem. And we get to chapter 16, which is one of those chapters that's easily overlooked. It's one of those chapters that's a list of names. And when we get there in our Bible reading, we think, oh, will I actually read all this? Or will I read it very quickly? And we kind of find it a bit boring, a bit irrelevant. But actually, it's a really important chapter. I think it's Tom Wright. I, he loves to be different. He thinks this is the most important chapter in the book. I think I'm right to say that. Someone's definitely said that. Um, it is really interesting. So Paul addresses all these people, which is interesting, of course, because he's never been to Rome. It's a church he's not been to, and yet he knows all these people which says something about who Paul is. He's a wonderful relational man who loves people, who has good friends. It says something about um, kind of interrelationships between churches in the early church, even in a world where communication and travel were so much more difficult. And notice the variety of people. In this list of people, there are men and women, couples and singles, young and old, Jews and Gentiles, slave and free. He's showing them they've got this opportunity to enact the unity he's been talking about. They are this incredibly diverse community, as you would rarely have found in the ancient world. He's shown them, you can be united in this gospel you've been talking about. And also notice, that we said at the start, this is a missional letter. It's part of Paul's mission, and all of these people can be caught up in God's mission. In there, there are fellow workers. There are hosts of house churches. There are those who worked hard for you, those who are fellow prisoners, who are workers in the Lord, who worked hard in the Lord. He's saying to them, you're a community and you're part of this mission too. He's not coming and saying, I'm the apostle and I'll do the mission while you go on with your life. He's saying, no, no, we're in this together. And I think Romans 16 is actually a wonderful chapter for us. Because it's easy to read this and think, wasn't Paul incredible? And how can we ever get heads around all this and all that, actually? No, here Paul is saying, and you're part of this diverse but unified community. And you're part of this mission too. You get to play your part in whatever way it is that God calls you to do so. And almost the kind of challenge of the end of Romans really is, okay, here's the gospel now, what part do you play in the mission of God to see that gospel go out? And right at the end, he, he ends really with another uh, final call to unity. So often these thematic things come back, especially at the beginning end. Again, the theme of obedience. He's going kind to of tie up all the loose ends of all the things that are so in, um, kind of important to him. And again, he ends in worship. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel, key theme, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret long for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and through the prophetic writings that have been made made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. Key theme. To the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the book of Romans. Any questions? We've got that five minutes. It means you've already understood it or you're completely bamboozled. And, uh, <laughs> take some time, as I said, to read through Romans, uh, slowly to pick it apart and kind of uh, get more from it, having had that map.